your Mintrax assignment from Matt Helgeson. Um, it's Google is telling me that this is in Latin. And so I'm going to just hit this translate message button and see what it says. Just got the email from Jason. We're going to see what Emily has in store for me. Should be interesting. Check the email. It didn't hardly translate any of the words. So good job, Google. Her pick is Bjork Utopia. It talks about salad and soccer and protein diameter. And it says, however, unless you put orange and, okay, bananas. So some of these words seem legit. Obviously, Bjork, back in the day, like Post and, you know, all that kind of stuff, I was pretty familiar with. But um, I kind of did lose track over the years, so it will be interesting. She's awesome. And then at the bottom, gratefully in English, it says Kate Bush, Hounds of Love. My experience with Kate Bush is that one tune she did with Peter Gabriel. And I am so excited because this is going to be like the Wayland Ladies edition of Crossfade. I'm pretty excited about it. Welcome, you are not listening to Mintracks, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. You are listening to Crossfade. And uh, so that's our big announcement this week. Uh, we, we talked about it a little bit on, on social media and also in our Patreon Discord. Uh, we have decided, after some discussion internally for, I don't know, probably about a month, Jason, I think we've been talking about it. Yeah, it's been a little while. Um, yeah, and so we've we basically decided that we needed a new name Uh Long story short, min-max obviously works because that's a, a video game term. Min-tracks was kind of a pun on that, but it doesn't really convey something that's about music. And we've definitely had trouble with people kind of remembering it and also the, the uh, abnormal spelling with T-R-A-X. So we thought Crossfade was a, a, a musical term in terms of a DJ kind of juggling between two albums, which is basically the concept of the show. And uh, we've decided moving forward we're going to be Crossfade. Shout out to Jason, uh, our producer, who thought of it uh, a while ago before we kind of had our internal vetting of it. And it, it, I think it, it, it's going to be good. We're excited. I know sometimes change is not always welcome, but um, you know, we talked about it with the community on Discord. And I think that people understood the reasons for it. And, uh, you know, again, for our Patreon supporters, we, we continue to, um, you know, value your, your passion about the show, your input. And, and, you know, hopefully as we move forward, it'll, start, it'll feel more natural and it'll just become crossfade to you. So. That's our announcement, and I think it's going to be exciting. I think it'll hopefully help us reach out to some new music fans that maybe aren't as in tune to like video games or the MinMax community. Um, so with that out of the way, I'd like to welcome our very special guest, Emily Reese. Hey, Emily. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. And for people that don't know, uh, Emily is also a, uh, a podcaster, a renowned podcaster. Uh, she uh, was formerly at Minnesota Public Radio, where she did an amazing uh, show that Back, uh, I think we had some interactions back when I was at Game mm-hmm. Informer. Yeah. Um, it was called Top Score with her partner, Sam Keenan. And it was a podcast about the composers that basically write music for video games. Currently, she has a new show called Level with Emily Reese. That's, I think, fairly similar in concept. It, mm-hmm. it deals with, with the audio and games, composing, sound design, and voiceover actors. Uh, she's also the host of the morning show for KBEM Jazz 88.5 in Minneapolis, which is a, a great jazz station and a, commu- a true community radio station, Minneapolis Public Schools. Uh, so we encourage you if you're in the Twin Cities or if you're online, uh, check out Jazz 88. Um, she also has another podcast called Scores and Pours, which um, 
It's kind of an interesting concept. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? That show I have a co-host for. Her name is Jill Mott, and she's a sommelier, which is someone who's a, an expert in wine, who's passed a series of tests on wine and beers and spirits. And so we, she talks about alcoholic beverages, cocktails, whatever, all kinds of things, uh, mostly wine, but we delve into beer and uh, cocktails and other things as well. And then I talk about classical music. So I might focus on a concept that covers many different eras, or I might focus on one concept from an era or something like that. We try and keep it accessible and fun because we both are super passionate and love those things. And we want other people to love them too. So we just kind of try and tell tell people like it is. And it's, it's a good time. You can find us in all the usual spots, scores and pours. Yeah. And I, I was, uh, I've been listening to uh, some level, uh, the, yeah. the video game focus show. And it, it was really, uh, I think it's obviously a great show. I was, I was a fan of the previous show as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I listened to uh, Charlie Rosen, which uh, I thought oh, that yeah. was a really fun one. He's a, he's a guy that's uh, basically doing kind of, I don't know, big band kind of Count Basie type yep. versions of, of video game scores, which I yeah. think is a really fun idea. And, and that was, he was a really cool guest, really obviously super musician and super knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also listened to a little bit of, uh, a uh, what about the new Assassin's Creed Valhalla soundtrack, which you oh, yeah. talked about? And I found out that even though I've, I've, I've interviewed this guy, I it's not Jesper Kid, it's Jesper Kid, and Correct, I've, been mispro- yeah. I've been mispronouncing that uh, unprofessionally all these years. I um, honestly, he doesn't mind. He really doesn't mind because people. Okay. It's just it's so you're you're in the clear. I think he would let you off the hook. <laughs> okay, I just felt like such an ugly American when I heard you say it. I'm like, oh, <laughs> dang it! Of course, it's Jesper. Yeah, but. Uh, <laughs> In any case, he's he's certainly been uh, you know one of the leading uh, video game composers I think for the you know last decade or even oh, yeah. more. So mm-hmm. uh, that was that was a really good episode as well. So we encourage you to check out Level with Emily Reese. Uh, there's a website Level with Enemy uh, sorry Level with Emily uh, So please check that out. Um, and now let's uh, get to why you're here. Uh, I, I we were talking a little bit about about before we started recording, but uh, this the format that we have with people kind of giving blind. Uh, picks to the other person uh we we come up with some really interesting things and like i said you know sometimes it's weird al versus steely dan uh which are very disparate uh artists but sometimes just by sheer kind of coincidence we end up with uh, a show where the two artists and the two albums seem kind of very tied and i think in this case this is probably the uh one of the more interesting pairings we've had because i think uh my pick was uh hounds of love by kate bush your pick was utopia uh, i believe the last album by bjork and mm-hmm. I think these are two artists that have a lot of similarities. Um, I don't know, just yeah. in terms of how they approach art and how they approach music. And I think just their sheer original voice. I think both of them as composers and songwriters are truly, truly original in a way that I think not many artists are. Yeah, I I was just explaining to a friend uh, right a couple hours ago that I, I kind of think Kate Bush is kind of the, the British Bjork. And it is... It is. I will t- also tell you, it is Bjork. It, she will say it rhymes with jerk. <laughs> Man, I'm butchering everything. <laughs> Sorry. So not at all. So she, she's, uh, she's Kate Bush uh, it, and Bjork both are such experimental songwriters. It seems like they're they're very open minded in where a song will go, and I love that quality about them both. Yeah, and I actually looked up. I did a little digging because I had a hunch and. Uh, it was a website called Far Out Magazine, and uh, Bjork had picked her 10 best albums of all time. And one of them, which this makes total sense if you're a big Kate Bush fan, um, this makes a lot of sense. Her favorite, uh, one of her top 10 favorite albums is not Hounds of Love, but another Kate Bush album called The Dreaming, 
which was the album uh, before Hounds of Love. And, you know, that made a lot of sense to me. It's kind of probably the most challenging of all the Kate Bush albums hmm. and probably the most experimental of all the Kate Bush albums. And it, it, it's also equally, I think, uh, as good of an album as, as Hounds of Love. But I, so I guess, uh, you know, coming up, you know, Bjork was uh, also influenced by Kate. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, they're, they're probably, I didn't look, but I'm, I'm sure Bjork isn't that much younger than Kate Bush, if at all. And they're very similar era. I mean, I'm sure actually Bjork is probably a little bit younger than her. I think I looked and they may be like eight years difference. Okay. Yeah, that, but that that's, makes you know, sense. That, that's enough to be like, you know, somebody in your early 20s recording and somebody that's a yeah. teen, yeah. you know, listening. Totally. So. Yeah. So that is, that's a just significant difference. And, um, but still just the, man, it, it's amazing. The electronics, they experiment with and uh, piecing together recorded pre-recorded sounds and which is actually a concept called musique concrète which is kind of cool it's where you pre I mean I don't know if maybe you know this Matt but you take pre-recorded anything whether it's voice or bird song or yes. a helicopter that Pink Floyd used and repurposing it musically speaking um and they they both just do that all over the place I love it it's so great <laughs> Yeah, this is one of several times during this podcast when I'll uh, say that I know just enough about classical music to be kind of dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> I believe is that like those guys like uh, like uh, like Stockhausen and yes. those type of people. Okay, yes. those kind of German experimental kind of. Well, yeah, French too. It was a French, French man okay. who uh, who invented it. Yeah, Pierre Schaeffer. Yeah, in oh, the forties. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm not familiar with him, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm familiar with sort of using recorded sound yep. as part of composition is the the basis of it. Which I suppose then you know by you know happenstance later in like the late seventies, you know, kids in the Bronx kind of came up with it, sort yeah, of independently for for hip hop. Um, yeah. But let's uh, let's get into um, your pick, which is Utopia. Um, it's a I think it's her most recent album. And uh, tell me a little bit, I mean, obviously she's got a, a long catalog and people are probably more familiar with some of her stuff like Post mm-hmm. uh, and, and that era of the kind of uh, early to late or mid mid to late 90s. Um, what is it about Utopia that kind of spoke to you? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I am a fan of hers and um, I do love all of her stuff is amazing to me. And uh, nostalgically speaking, personally speaking, I think uh, Homogenic is probably my favorite or Post. But Utopia, I just found to be such a, um, I guess, trying not to overspeak, but I, I found it just to be such a triumph in a concept album. I just, I think that album is just, has such beautiful consistency all the way through uh, for the most part. And it, it ends strong and it's just gorgeous to me. I, I love, um, I just love what she did with it. You know, I, I just had so much respect for the fact that you can listen to it from start to finish and have like this whole experience. And, you you know, you can say this about that Kate Bush album, too, but you can't say that about every album, right? I mean, no. So uh, that I think is what draws me to it cognitively, especially in addition to it just being gorgeous music, some of her most gorgeous music and probably least heavy metal, you know, because she can get. So yeah. metal sometimes, which is great, and I love that too. But even comparing Utopia to Biophilia, that's a huge difference in tone. So, um, well, or yeah. So that's that's kind of. And again, it, it's yeah. sort of a semi-novice. It, it felt the most kind of almost classically classical music inspired in some ways too. I feel like you know a lot of the yeah, I mean instrumentation and 
Yeah, I I don't know. I hear that a lot in all her stuff and and I I mean I can hear that even in um you know yoga off of homogenic or um even the the you know jazz portion of um you know what you hear on post uh you know I it it just is it's very forward in this album for sure. So from that angle then yes. Yeah. And we should probably mention that uh, I, I did a little reading on this, and she had a collaborator in this uh, producer by the name of Arca, mm-hmm. I believe he's Venezuelan, and they seem like they've kind of developed a real sort of uh, close collaborative musical relationship over the past few years. Quick editor's note here. Arca went by he, him pronouns when Utopia was created, but now uses she, her pronouns. So I think, I would assume that Arca was also, you know, sort of informing some of the things that she was doing, even though to me having sort of, I kind of missed, you know, a decent amount of her career, to be honest, you know, mm-hmm. sort of in, the, in recent years kind of lost touch with her a bit. Yeah. And it's very different than, the, I mean, I, I suppose homogene, homogenic was probably my like state of emergency, I think was the one that really got me mm-hmm. like to kind of fall in love with her. I remember seeing that video. Yeah, yoga. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and uh, you know, but it's interesting how much she's evolved since I probably was paying a lot more attention to her, but also how much I think at core, it still feels like, you know, Bjork to me. And it still has the core of what she had back then, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think maybe, maybe that's the hallmark of a great artist. Um, Yeah. And I will say just quickly about Arca, you know, he had worked with her on other projects before other albums before, but she always had him add after everything was done. But this truly was collaborative where they sent music back and forth. And she talks about that in the lyrics, sending music back and forth and falling in love, uh, you know, via because I believe he's from Venezuela. And of course, she's from Iceland. And she wrote that album in Iceland. So mostly. So it it just, um, yeah, a really beautiful relationship, musically speaking, in a way that she hadn't done before. So a true collaboration rather than, you know, adding stuff after the fact, which is great, too. But it's just neat how how they did that this time. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's let's listen to a track here. I think the first track, Arisen My Senses, is uh, was one of the kind of singles and, and it's the first track. And I think it really kind of sets the stage for the sonic world if you want to put it that way that that this album has You called this a concept album earlier, didn't you? Yeah. Can you dig into I what did. exactly that means? I mean, for me, it means uh, an album that's meant to not be separated out into singles. And an okay. album that, that's meant to be consumed in one sitting. 
Um, and perhaps people have a more academic explanation than me, but that's kind of how I've always thought of it. It's like sure. this is a it's like a symphony. It's like there's movements here that belong together. Um, right. There's yeah. a whole idea that's being communicated. Yep. There's uh, an order. There's perhaps there's a lyrical theme. Sometimes there is. Sometimes there isn't. It could be a sonic thread. Um, but there's something connecting all of these things as a whole that makes them less significant when they're separate. Maybe we can attack it later on, but do you know what that thing is for this album, that thing that's tying it all together? Uh, yeah, a lot of it is uh, the flutes um, and the bird song and just overall positivity uh, compared to the release that came out before this, which uh, that dealt with more heartbreak and dissolution of relationships rather than the starting of them. So this whole album is just uh, way more, as far as Bjork goes, positive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and this song's really beautiful. You can kind of hear these sort of like, I almost picture in my head like kind of fireworks with this song. Mm-hmm. There's kind of those big sort of like almost explosions, those kind of chordal things that happen and it sort of overlapping. Just reminds me of the cadence of like fireworks. Yeah. Um, Oh, the harp, too. The harp you hear an awful lot throughout, which is just great. Yeah, it's a, it's a, this is a gorgeous song. It really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I so the next one I wanted to talk about I think might tie in a little bit to some of the things you were talking about Emily is um, I, I there's a lot of lyrical references here and, and not even references pretty explicit lyrics not explicit in the sense of being you know exquisite yeah. but you know <laughs> plain spoken lyrics let's say um, it, I mean it, it seems like she's beginning a new romantic relationship here. Um, and it, it seems like, I don't know, are her and Arca yes. a couple? Oh, I, okay. I mean, they they did. I, I honestly don't know now to, like, right now, but they they did fall in love through the course of that album, yes. Okay. I was mm-hmm. kind of wondering that. Sometimes I don't like to read too much about it while yeah. I'm listening to it because I don't want to be sort of, you can kind of get into that, like, kind of like Fleetwood Mac rumors kind of thing, <laughs> where, like, the, the narrative of the album kind of starts to overwhelm it. But, yeah. Um, I suspected that, and I, I think it, it's uh, it's really kind of a sweet track, uh, which is Blissing Me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in particular here, I, I thought it was the first time it occurred to me that, uh, you know, there's a line about, you know, sending each other MP3s, kind of bonding over music. But it kind of also, it just in the age of Spotify and streaming, it kind of almost made me, occur to me that, like, you know, ex- exchanging MP3s is almost sort of like this, like, somewhat archaic thing now you know yeah like almost like you know trade like listening to like 45s or yep <laughs> or like, or like making records. a mixtape or something yeah she well, she also mentions yeah. i believe on the song but let's hear blessing me because this one i think is again where you know for bjork who's you know kind of i think she she's interesting that sometimes her lyrics are very uh symbolic weird. for yeah oh. and, and, uh, <laughs> yeah well weird yeah yeah yes and symbolic yes <laughs> but but in this in this album she's 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 
pretty direct in a lot yeah. of senses in a way that I don't associate with her. And I think this song is a really sweet and a, a nice example of it, which is Blissing Me. All of my mouth was kissing Now into the air I am missing it. Is this curious emily just you know compositionally what are some of your thoughts on this song um it's it kind of is like a little bit of a theme and variations right because she's singing the same melody over and over again but she keeps adding layers almost like video game music if you think about it as the intensity ramps up more things get added and uh, i just i love that and the lyrics are so tender and she She has such a powerhouse voice, but she also has the ability to sing with such a vulnerability. You just want to like hug her, you know, Mm -hmm. and I just I love the delicate way she sings this tune. Yeah. I don't know if it's a thing throughout all of her discography, but um, her use of non-vocal sounds as well. Uh, yeah. just like plosives and rolled R's and stuff really stuck out to me on this album I forget which track it is but she really rolls her R's on the word parts on one of these yeah. tracks in a way that <laughs> yeah. just like makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck as such like a weirdly yeah. intimate thing you don't expect to hear on record uh, that just mm-hmm. sticks out to me yeah she she she's an R roller I mean that's Icelandic and so she lets that through a, a time or two on pretty much all her albums it's pretty mm-hmm. great just it makes feels... you love it that much more it's so real you know yeah, yeah. it feels very intentional right <clears throat> yeah yeah it does also that's another parallel I, I was thinking about with her and Kate Bush is they're both extraordinarily informed by their homeland you know yes Bjork is so Icelandic and I think Kate is so incredibly British yeah and Kate doesn't hide her accent either you know like a lot of British singers I think we're expected to, especially in the 70s and 80s, but in the 70s, well, maybe, what do I know? I don't know what I'm talking about, but I, I just noticed that she doesn't hide that either, and I love that. Yes, yeah, And I'm really actually excited about the next one I wanted to listen to and, and the portion of it that I wanted to listen to, Emily, yeah. because I'm hoping, I noticed something that I sort of never noticed before, or I... I noticed it before, but I wasn't conscious of it. And it's a specific thing to Bjork. And I'm curious, like, what it is, um, if you could explain it better to me. But um, yeah, I want to listen to The Gate, which is another, I think, really standout track. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason's about 257. 
But there's a specific thing she does here that's a very Bjorkism. There's that role, yep. Jason. Yeah, it's a nice, nice sound. Okay, right here, Emily, I became conscious of like that care for me, that yeah. specific interval, the way she breaks a word, a single syllable word into two syllables, but that, what is that specific interval? Because that, to me, like that's such a Bjork interval. It's a minor second. It's the Jaws interval. Oh, okay. No, it's not. You... No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. Oh my God! It's a major second. It's not the Jaws interval. Oh, <laughs> oh okay, okay, okay. I know. You're I just had to... on another podcast. It's not just... even yours. <laughs> I just, I just whistled it. I'm like, wait, no. Um, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's just a major second. So it's like a major scale. The first two notes. And then I feel she... like she, I feel like that's typical. Like I, I've heard that interval in her work. Yeah, I mean, many she, times. It's a, it's a, it's probably partial. I mean, it's probably. Um, Bach did this too. She just likes that particular way that lays in the scale. So she's singing like the fourth and fifth scale degree kind of. Um, yeah. So so uh, it, it just gives that sound of like kind of not really settled. It's not really um, stable. It's not really stable. You right. know. So it might just be that she's drawn to that. For Bach, it was a minor second. It was a it was a three note little uh, motive that he was really drawn to that you hear peppered throughout all his music. So it wouldn't surprise me if she's got something like that. But I can't confirm nor deny it. But I can correct myself to say it is a major second, <laughs> not a minor see, second. <laughs> before I, I get I, slayed. See, <laughs> no, no, I love this because like now I have somebody that knows what they're talking about. I'm gonna have to. You're gonna have to be like our our like theory consultant on the show so whenever <laughs> i have like an actual question about music instead of just saying like that's cool yeah. <laughs> uh, happy to help yeah yeah no it's it's amazing and the, you know the other thing i kind of failed to mention that is something i frequently talk about whenever i talk about her is that to me you know if you listen to even homogenic which came out in 1997 that album could have come out in 2017 and you you it doesn't sound like 1997 and that's she's so fluid that way like she's writing music that people want to write now it's like but it's tomorrow's music you know i just i just find it so innovative in the way she writes that um i i yeah so i wanted to no, make I mean, sure i said that and i mean really like the, the other thing about bjork she's been so successful and iconic on her own that like you know you start to forget that she had what many people would consider a very successful career before she even went solo with yeah with the, the sugar cubes i mean the sugar cubes were yeah. definitely a not huge band they weren't like you know yeah uh, rem or something but they they certainly had a very successful kind of 80s you know pre kind of alternative rock definitely band, um De career definitely. And, and several albums that were very successful and they had definitely had a following mm -hmm. um, and they they were really a, a good and very unique band as well they um, were and i'm grateful that she left because i i mean i think she definitely needed to go in her own Bjork direction, you know, and, but I do love sugar cubes, but it's nothing. I mean, it's, yeah, <laughs> it just would never have been this, you know, I, I love, I love the sugar cube. The dude can be a little bit much. Yeah. In the sugar cubes, that other singer, yeah. that Einer guy, like, yeah, you yeah. know, 
I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes he's a little bit much. Yeah. But uh, they were they were a cool, uh, very cool musical musical band. Yeah, um, they were. Yeah, for sure. The, the next one in this this again, I'm going to go into my kind of like you know half knowledge. This this happened to be certain classical things. I just like somebody tells me about them, and I don't have a very good breadth of classical knowledge. But I'll just like specific things I will listen to if somebody tells yeah, me. Sure. And I found I ran across this in a book called Electric Eden, which was a a really cool book. It's sort of the history of like English folk music in the 20th century. Whoa. Neat. Uh, yeah, it's a it's an amazing book. I think you'd really like it. it. It details kind of like the early century. And one of the people that was sort of perceived as a contributor to that, even though he's classical, was Vaughn Williams. Yes. Um, and this next song is the title track, Utopia. It kind of reminds me of this, because this this book sort of had a Spotify playlist that went along with it. Oh, cool. Yeah, the, the author had made one. So I kind of got exposed to a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of reminds me of a little bit of like The Lark Ascending. Yeah. Um, by by Vaughn Williams, which is I mm-hmm. happen to just know because of this playlist. Um, but I thought Utopia, the title track, seemed to be one of the more most explicitly kind of classical songs, and I really like that Vaughn Williams thing. I don't know a lot about him other than he was a mm. British composer of the mm-hmm. early twenty early twentieth century. But uh, yeah, anyway, I'd be curious to know your take on that, and maybe we can listen to a little bit of it here. Yeah, I mean, uh, he's another one who can get you in trouble with pronunciation because his first name looks like Ralph, but it's Rafe, just like Rafe Fiennes, the actor. So it's Rafe Von Williams. Uh, okay. but the Von Williams part, you were nailed, which you didn't okay. even say Ralph. So you, you <laughs> Well, I kind of avoided it because I was yeah, just that was like, good. I, I just was like, oh, well, let's go to his last name. He's like Beethoven, you know, last yes. name basis, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So uh, the cool thing about Von Williams is he was able to really talk about unique. He had a unique voice as well. Eventually, he it took him a few years to kind of find it. But then once he found his sound, you can listen to Vaughn Williams and just know it's Vaughn Williams. And for him, that was a very, what we would call modal rather than tonal sound. And that's a whole other conversation. But um, that is probably kind of what you're hearing in in a lot of this um, music, uh, probably utopia as well, just uh, a different approach to harmony than what we're accustomed to hearing, especially if we're just listening to Top 40. There's very simple rule, harmonic rules those tunes follow so that they can be memorable and so that catchy and so we can sing to them quickly. So, um, but then there's this whole other approach to harmony that Von Williams embraced much of. And also Von Williams was super duper in love with um, Folk music, as you were saying, that's, I'm sure that's why they were talking about him in that book, because he loved yeah. English folk music. And so he was, you know, considered kind of an ethnomusicologist as well. And just not, well, that's not really accurate. But he did take a lot of folk music and turn it into, you know, orchestral works and, and things like that. And The Lark Ascending is is fantastic and beautiful. And um, I love that piece. So <laughs> that's a good one. If anybody wants Von Williams, there's lots of great Von Williams. I'd be happy to make a list for later if somebody wants one. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I really liked it. And I just want to actually plug this book. I, to me, it was one of the, the better um, music books I've read for quite some time. It's called Electric Eden, Unearthing Britain's Visionary Music by a gentleman named Rob Young. Cool. Uh, and it's it's very cool. So it basically starts with like, early 20th century people like Vaughn Williams through like the kind of folk revival and then the kind of, you know, 60s kind of mm-hmm. weirder, you know, uh, folk rock kind of, you know, Fairport Convention, Richard Thompson, um, you know, people like Mellow Candle, bands like that. Um, Interesting. Anyway, it's, a, it's a very well done book and kind of, and there's, it gets into some of that kind of witchy, like 
British like Stonehenge and like ley lines Neat. and stuff like that. Yeah, so it's it's a cool book. <laughs> nice. Um, but let's let's listen to Utopia because I thought this was just a very stunning uh, song to me. Yeah. One thing that, uh, like right here, what they're doing, which I appreciate, is the fact that even as this, like the the kind of flute type thing that's going on here, yeah. is probably the most explicitly like kind of classical music sounding, at least to me. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there's these underlying like weird modernisms, like that kind of skittering percussion yep. or that weird sample that was kind of happening. So it never really just settles into sort of like just a comfortable neoclassical kind of thing. You know, exactly. It, it, there's always this weird, like uneasy kind of modernism and yep. cut up kind of digital editing vibe, which maybe that's partially Arca, but I'm you know, she's always had that to her music as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, who's going to make an album full of like flute, fluty flute business and like put like some sample of some disturbing baby cry like <laughs> yeah. it sounds like like a toy you know like it's just like kind of weird and and then eventually and i noticed as i was re-listening to the album today it's like that just becomes such a part of the background i'm like oh yeah i wonder if he thinks that sound is weird because i forgot that's i mean it's like i know this track backwards and forwards but it's such a part of the landscape for me or the soundscape that I'm like, oh, wait, yeah, at first that really affected me. And now it just assimilates into the listening experience, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I just, I mean, it's it's super ambitious. It's it's super inventive. And I think the cool thing to me is that while it, it feels different than other Bjork stuff I've heard, it still feels very much a piece in, in a fundamental way to yeah. other stuff she's done in the past. I Definitely. wanted to, I mean, I have a few other ones I wanted to listen to, but... Uh, you know, are there any particular before you know ones that you that really speak to you that we haven't covered? I wanted to make sure that we got to some of your favorites. Oh man, um, I think Claim Staker is pretty cool. That one's one of the more electronic, um, but also Loss is probably Utopia is one of my favorites, and we just did that great. Love Loss. Love the way Sumi starts. Tabula Rasa, another great fluty flute thing happening. Um, but I'll, I'll narrow it down for you. Let's talk okay, about yeah. Claim Staker for sure. And okay. maybe the track right after that, Paradisia, or say any of the last four tracks, including Claim Staker. Yeah. Yeah. Loss, I was a big fan of as well. So let's oh, listen to the um, Claim Staker first, Jason. Okay. <clears throat> this is so Bjork to me. This She does this kind of stuff often. 
Um, there's some really great like organ stuff on biophilia that's very improvisatory like this that I that I totally dig, and it reminds me of that. I can't remember the last one I heard. It. There was one that I think she had Mike Patton was on doing kind of vocalism stuff. Oh, cool! Yeah, I don't know who that Maybe is. Maybe Vulcanera was that one or Medulla or something. Yeah. Cool. on the entire album is really amazing, I think. Yeah, her production skills are pretty sick. It's ridiculous to me. This is where I get to kind of nerd out a little bit. I read a little bit of a profile of Bjork, or Bjork, sorry, at the time that this <laughs> album came out. Um, and she mentioned that she was very interested because uh, her previous album had sort of taken a very vocals-forward approach. I mean, very, obviously, lushly instrumentated, but um, that she wanted this album to be written more with like four or five different vocal lines sort of going mm. at once and none of them to stand out, none of them to be a quote unquote lead vocal on a lot of them, nice. which I think really paid off in a lot of the textures that it, her voice helps create in tracks like this. I, mm-hmm. it, it's sort of like an enchanting, like it's weird to call it weird to just say the name of the album, but utopia, right? It's just like pleasing yeah. sound around, including her voice. Yeah. Totally. I mean, it's, it's uh, the one thing I always think about with her is like, I'm trying to think of somebody that, you know, let's say Neil Young. He might be my favorite artist of all time overall. But I can sort of like understand, like I play music. I can sort of understand like a Neil Young song. You know what I mean? Or how he arrived mm-hmm. at that. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you sit down with a blank page and come up with like this? <laughs> you know what I mean? And end up here. Yeah. Right? Like, I just, I don't, I can't. It's not just like, oh, yeah, you strum a C chord and an E minor. And you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It, it's like, I don't know. It, yeah. that's, that's I guess that's the gift. Um, another yep. one you mentioned was Lost, which I really, that was one of my favorites and I, we should, we should play that. It's so beautiful. Lost with three S's. Yeah. Lost. <laughs> which is kind of how she sings it. So. This takes me back to homogenic, the nineties, but. Now, why do you say that? What uh, what sounds similar? Uh, the the reverb on the drums. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty. Uh, 
pretty nineties. <laughs> <laughs> Just reminds me, maybe she used the same reverb on that album or something. I'd find that weird, but maybe. <laughs> if it works, it works. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say if uh, if it's weird, Bjork probably did it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And the main vocal melodies. Yeah, and it's literally just a descending minor Dorian scale. It's like it's nothing fancy at all. It's just beautiful, you know. Yeah, Matt was just about to say the same thing. <laughs> I <laughs> I know all my modal scales, but I don't know what they mean. <laughs> I grew oh, up reading. Go. I read. I grew up reading guitar magazines, so. All those like heavy metal shredders kind of dudes. Yeah. They use all those modal scales, except they don't like know how they relate to theory. So I just learned all these like hand shapes basically from like yeah. guys that were in like, yeah. s- you know, Metallica and Slayer and stuff. Hell yeah. Nothing wrong with that. No, the metal dudes are very into like classical. You know, like, uh, yeah. Some of them. beautiful i uh kind of there's one that i wanted to kind of get back to the lyrics a little bit which uh again i was kind of struck by some sometimes on this album how direct and kind of nakedly emotional the lyrics are and, and that uh one of those songs is a uh, tabla rasa mm-hmm. which i mean is sort of her i mean pretty directly writing to her children or does she have children or just uh i know she has one child i don't okay. know if she has okay. more than one okay yeah. So they're a child then. Um, yeah. But Jason, about 120, I just thought these like lyrics about, and I, I, I understood after I listened to it a bunch, I, she had gone through sort of a divorce that was not pleasant. Correct. Okay. And this seems, uh, somebody's ears are burning when they hear this, I, let, let's say. <laughs> That's amazing, that effect right there. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say as a parent, the... Uh, the, the 
<laughs> you will have to deal with shit soon enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Made me look at my 10-year-old and say, well, yeah, you will. <laughs> yeah. This video, too, by the way, is pretty cool. Yeah, actually, that's a great point. I mean, Bjork, of all artists, too, I mean, as a visual video artist, I mean, she's really... I she's the up, whole package. Yeah, I mean, up there with anybody in terms of... I, I, did, I didn't watch the video for this. I watched another one that was sort of this very cre- creepy kind of, uh, I don't know, body. It was weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, her, her video, she's known, I think, equally for her incredibly mm-hmm. inventive and striking videos. Um, yeah. Well, let, we should probably wrap things up here. Do you want to hear uh, Paradisia real quick? That's sort of a nice, I thought, very short and succinct uh, sure. little... Wrap, wrap it up with yeah. some flutes. Yeah, one thing I, I definitely appreciate about this album, and I think you brought it up, Emily, is just, it has just such a unique kind of sound world, for lack of a better mm-hmm. term. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's so, I don't know, it just, I think the great albums kind of conjure up their own sort of world, and this certainly does that with, with the instrumentation and with the writing style, and, and, you know, even within her very diverse and very unique discography, I think it, it has a unique place. Yes, and it's funny because, you know, if I'm going to start making a list of my favorite instruments in an orchestra, I'm not going to start with flute, and I'm probably not going to get to flute until, like, 10th or 12th down the row. But wow, I, okay. I mean, I don't hate flute by any means. It's just nothing. <laughs> I don't gravitate toward flute, and it, I just, she uses it so beautifully, and just, like, using this whole choir of, of different types of flutes, and um, it's it's cool. It's really great. It's beautiful. It is. It is. It's a beautiful album, and I'm 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 super glad you chose it because it, again, she's one of those artists I've I've always admired. Um, but you know, sometimes you know you make that mistake of thinking people as they get on in their career aren't making maybe the music they made earlier when you were paying attention. And obviously, mm, she's not. <laughs> no, she's not. But I mean, it, it's a, it's. A, I know it, what you mean, though. Yeah, but I mean, it, it's it's significant. It's of equal quality, and like I'm super yeah. glad that I kind of got in touch with her again. And this has just been, a, a, I think, kind of a magical album. Mm-hmm. to listen to mm-hmm. um yeah so so thank you for that um and no, no, let's get into my pick um what can we say kate bush she's a a true icon i think um in the in the sense in the true sense of the word um mm-hmm. a true original uh and and probably one of the more unique songwriters and and more striking artists i think of probably the past you know whatever 40 years um do, do you, i'm assuming you have some uh affinity for her prior to this no i i didn't know her i mean i knew who she was and okay interesting uh, yeah but i never listened to her records ever and wow this is awesome i know yeah no it was awesome and i loved it and uh it it, (laughs) as i say in my 
intro, which is hilarious. There's so many things about my intro. I'm just like, Jesus, Emily. I Sorry, love it maybe so I shouldn't much. have said it's that. But. so much fun <laughs> cutting it up. Yeah. Yeah, just, just, just let it go. It's good. It's good. Yeah, I know. I thought it was Latin. And then I fi- I read what Jason had said. I'm like, oh, clearly I never worked in print media. So I don't know what I- Ipsum, whatever that is. I don't know. It was <laughs> Lorem Ipsum, like, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, Google tra- Google's like you on Translate. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, wow, you suck at this, Google. <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> Uh, but no, that was, uh, I, I, I say in the intro, the only, I knew Kate Bush from the Peter Gabriel song, Don't Give Up, right? That's beautiful that, song. Because yes. I grew up, I just turned 44 a couple weeks ago. I grew up in the 80s. So I, it's both weird and not weird at all that I didn't hear Kate Bush just because of where I grew up in a small town in Iowa. But uh, that was my experience with her was because that song was a huge hit. And uh, I mean, way huger in my world than any of her other singles. And so when I looked up this record and it was like, uh, was it running up that hill? A deal with God is one of her biggest hits. And I was like, I don't, I'm sure I've heard this song, but I don't remember ever hearing this song. And so it was just fun to just like listen to an album from start to finish uh, that I, I hadn't experienced before. And just knowing that she was an icon but just not ever delving into her music. It was great. So I I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is definitely, I mean, as opposed to maybe the Bjork album, which is sort of a, I don't know, not her most well-known. This is totally her, like, you know, dark side of the moon, so to speak. This is what, you know, and in England, I think she has a much different profile than she does in the United States. She's sort of a cult artist in the United States. But I think in England at this point, especially she was, Definitely on, I think, like Top of the Pops. And, you know, she had chart hits in England. So, um, I mean, let's let's get into it. Like, uh, I mean... I would we say did. of all albums, this, this this opens like a house on fire. Like yeah. yeah, it does. I mean... <laughs> We'd be amiss if we didn't start by playing Running Up That Hill, Deal With God. Yeah. I mean, seriously, when she started singing, I was like, yes, bring it. I love yeah. it. It's so great. No, it, I mean, she's... Go ahead, Jason. Oh, I was just going to say, I love how dramatic it sounds, like her, her affectations of her voice. Her ver- yeah. speaking voice isn't way far off from this, but it is just like sort of very instantly building a character through that voice. I love it so much. I, I didn't know this album prior to this, but I was telling Matt that there's um, like a distinct resurgence of Kate Bush love among... Uh, millennials and Gen Z probably nice. since this album was remastered in 2018 and it's bizarre because I'll just see memes about Kate Bush's running up that hill and I'm like how the hell do like 20 year olds know this album this is a 1985 record I love it so much though. yeah yeah I mean I, I think there's something fundamentally I mean I'm, I'm more from you know Gen X and so it was kind of like what you had access to and you know now I think there's younger kids just they can find anything you know and I, I've I've totally had conversations with younger people that listen to stuff that's old and I have no idea how they came across it because it's like they just type it into Spotify and there you are you know yep I remember I oh god who was it though someone very young that I was interviewing for some reason and I believe it was related to the jazz station and I asked her 
what do you listen to? And she's like, I listen to the Indigo Girls. And I'm like, the Indigo Girls? Wait, <laughs> yeah. You're like 22 years. How do you know who the Indigo Girls are and why the hell are you listening to them? <laughs> I think I think the Indigo Girls, there's this very funny scene in the office revolving around the Indigo Girls. Oh, there is? Yeah. What season? Yeah, yeah where they kind of sing that, the Closer to Fine. The, the oh, big God. Hit. And okay. So I, I wonder if that kind of gave it a little second uh, life. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. but anyway, back to this song. I mean, this, oh, yeah. this to me is just like... <laughs> Talk about a knockout single, just like, yeah, it's so propulsive, and you know her vocals are so powerful as they always are, um, and just the kind of odd sort of, uh, I don't know, there's interesting things with gender going on, kind of trying to want to you know swap gender roles and things like that. I think that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, <clears throat> uh, it just even though I didn't know any of the tunes on this album it sounds like my childhood you know it just mm-hmm. sounds 80s which is gr- great in the best way i can me- make that because i love music from that era so yeah. it's not you know i don't mean it in a pejorative way at all it just again reverb the reverb you're yeah, just like it, all right we're in the 80s it's got the big phil collins kind of <laughs> gated gated drums yeah, but I mean, I was reading about how she used, and I'm so bad with my synths, and I can't remember the name it's of the fair synth. fair light. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how cool is that? So I loved that, too. That's badass. Yeah, her early stuff is much more traditional. Uh, you know, she was kind of a, a teen uh, prodigy to some degree. Um, okay. And uh, so her early stuff is much more piano-based. I mean, Tori Amos is definitely very influenced by earlier Kate Bush. Okay. Um, you know, and uh, she was actually discovered, uh, somehow David Gilmore got a, a demo tape of her at, like, I think age, like, 14 or something, very young, and he, he somehow wow. got it in the hands of EMI and was like, this girl, you know, this girl's, like, talented. Um, so she had kind of a, a charmed life in terms of... <laughs> square one to you know square 20 in terms of just being basically nobody to being like on emi through like a guy from pink floyd you know yeah no that's amazing (laughs) but yeah this is great i mean i I was gonna say i think that you know i was trying to think of albums that open this strong with the first three songs and it's like oh this is pretty good because the next song might is arguably like as, as great as is uh, running up that hill. Hounds of Love, the title track, I think, is is equal. Every bit is equal. Um, and this this is I like, loved this that is one, one yeah. of my favorite songs like of all time. I, I just absolutely I, I'll never tire of this song. Did the background singers in this song steal the show? I love it so much. It's coming. that all day i love it yeah i think that might be just be kate though oh it probably is i'm sure you're right yeah this part where it lifts up there oh my god
Yeah, it's funny. I, I wasn't like sitting and reading lyrics until this song started, and then I started to like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was like, wow, that that's badass, you know. Yeah. And I, I'm not very good at picking up on lyrics, and never have been in my whole life. I have to usually look them up, and then I forget them, and whatever. But um, it was really, especially when it came comes to the ninth wave part of the whole album. Yeah, yeah. That's just amazing to read about. Yeah, she's she's just like the thing. I, Kate is just too much. She's just too much, you know, and that's what I love about her. Like, she's just like, she's just going through the woods and little like foxes just jump into her arms. And you know yeah. what I mean? she, she throws her shoes off and like walks on the water. It's just like, she's, she lives in this kind of like almost her first song was Weathering Heights, which was, you know, she's basically playing a character from that novel. So she's always had this very sort of gothic, like classic, you know, not like romance kind of thing. And I, I just, I love it so much. I love it so much. I mean, I just, again, I loved this whole album and I, uh, the first one that I starred was track four, Mother Stands for Comfort. That's Even a great though, because uh, I, I was like, I just, I have to talk about the synth sounds she makes in this, in this track, because it's so cool. All the sound design stuff she does in here, like we were talking about with the Bjork album, just all the extra audio she's bringing in to make it part of the musical landscape was so, so cool. And I, I just yeah. love what she does. And I think it's like right around 35 or so seconds that, I think you first hear it in this track. It's super cool. Yeah. Fretless bass, another 80s classic. Yep. And I love, too, that she brings it. There's, like, fretless bass, but there's a, a track or two with acoustic bass, which sounds just really lovely. I feel like if I had heard this album when I was, you know, when it came out in 85 or maybe maybe when I was a little more emo teen, uh, I, I would have loved this track. This probably would have been like my favorite track on the album. Yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Actually, weirdly enough, uh, I got into Kate Bush because of Grand Theft Auto. Um, Which one? What? The Grand Theft Auto Vice City had the, that exhaustive like six CD uh, soundtrack. Yeah. All the, and there, uh, her song Wow from an earlier album was on there and I'd, I'd always heard of Kate Bush but I, I kind of fell in love with that song on the, on the Vice City soundtrack this, I, I wonder kinda, which which radio station was that on Not, I mean I, I played Vice had, City probably more than any game other than Skyrim in my entire life so. they had a vaguely kind of like you know 80s kind of alternative new wave you know what I mean kind of station yeah, and, yeah. and she was on it she's on one of the they, it was like a six CD box that was by station okay and yeah yeah I, I, and it's like the song called Wow my and God, I, I bet I know that song because of that game. <laughs> yeah, it's like, wow, wow, unbelievable. Yeah, it's from you know, <laughs> Emotion 98.3. Dude, yeah. that was my favorite station. That's the one with the REO Speedwagon tracks on it, right? Yeah. And so you've, Sister you've Christian and all that shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, and I mean, like, the Hauser brothers are British, you know what I mean? So, like, they probably, she was probably more of a yeah. you know, household name to them. Yeah. For what it's Amazing. worth, Grand Theft Auto is the last thing I thought we were going to bring up. <laughs> I know, we yeah. Talking about, <laughs> Kate Bush and Bjork. talking about Kate Bush and Bjork and Grand Theft Auto Vice yeah, City. Yeah, exactly. All. Oh, it's the um, best one in my but opinion. But no, yeah. uh, back to this song. This is a, yeah. this is a really, a, it's an amazing arrangement. And the fact that she's, you know, putting a lot of this together herself and or, or also just sort of, you know, using session musicians. Uh, yeah. Her, her total command, I think, of arranging records um, while still leaving a lot of space, which I always like. I think uh, that Bjork album had a great sense of space. I think that um, 
she's exceptional. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, in fairness, too, we talked about, you know, Bjork and, uh, you know, some of the sound design and stuff. Like, I mean, you had to work for it back then, too, you know. Yeah. It wasn't like, I mean, you know, Ark and her can just trade, you know. Right. Uh, like Pro Tools files. Like, th- yep. this was like, to do stuff like she's doing on, you know, the synths of that era and the sequencers, like, that's. Yeah, she's like cutting tape and stuff. Yeah. Like they did in the old days, for sure. Yeah, no, it's it's tremendous. A tremendous amount of work and um just so so good. So good. Um I, I to me I think the the next song too, uh Cloud Bursting, I think is kind of a, a Kate classic, I think, to a lot of people. And I think this song is is just so uh I don't know, inspirational to me. It's just it's a very triumphant kind of song. Great string stuff too. Yes. And like here, we talked about it a little bit. I mean, here I can see like a Bjork as a teen, maybe hearing something like this, you know? Yeah. And some parallels to what we just listened to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure Bjork wouldn't be who she is without Kate Bush. There's a, um, a a not short but quite good interview uh, with, I think it was from like 92 or something with BBC, where Kate Bush kind of goes back through this album track by track and explains sort of the the mindset behind each and sort of some inspirations. And uh, for Cloud Busting, she apparently she read a book. I forget the author now, but she read a book and just wanted to communicate the sense of childlike wonder around uh, watching the clouds and picking out shapes and stuff, something that she felt she was losing. I mean, she was 26 when she made this album, which is insane. Jesus, yeah. Oh yeah, God. right. I mean... <laughs> really? It's 26. Met, yeah, I'm, I'm 27 right now, and I feel like I already missed the boat on that. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta get busy, dude. Yeah, I gotta move and Start make my... Start sampling. Make my yeah. synth opus <laughs> out of the shed in Ireland yeah. or wherever she was. But, like a feeling she wanted to communicate. And that's something that I read about uh, Bjork's mindset with, with all of her music is that she wants to bring, she wants to like condense whole concepts into a feeling and then give that feeling a sound. Mm-hmm. And I just find that a really interesting commonality between these two albums that they do. Mm-hmm. Like mother stands for comfort is a very haunting, like definitely the scariest song on this album, which is weird when the last four tracks are about drowning. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it was just it, it. It left a very strong impression on me. Um, this song, just knowing the story behind it, how she wanted it to be like one of the more joyful and less dramatic songs, and it still comes out a little bit eerie. I guess that's just yeah. something she probably can't, uh, you know, contain to an extent. Yeah. Also, too, that with both her and your, uh, I mean, I, I definitely am a product of like kind of indie rock in the nineties, so I like a lot of. Vocalists that aren't very technically good, but there's something also about somebody that can just like go get it, you know, yeah. when they really, <laughs> yeah, 
when it rises and they just like belt it out, it's kind of amazing. Like just the sheer power of like both their voices when they really like let it go is just, I mean, that's just a God-given thing, you know? Yes. Yeah, it's like her her lyrics almost give you a sense of kind of like desperation or anxiousness. I know something good is going to happen, but then there's like this cheery string thing going on underneath. So mm-hmm. it is it is it's kind of a it's a fun feeling. Yeah, I mean, I just I I can't say enough good things about this record. I, mean, it just, it's, I, I bought it, you know, maybe like ten years ago, and it just. Over time, I, I like it even more, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely going to put this in rotation, and I've already told friends about it. I'm like, you guys, <laughs> we missed something important in the 80s. <laughs> and it's called Kate Bush. <laughs> yeah. And the 90s, I mean, and all the things. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I know, actually, I know there's many more records. She kind of came back a little bit in, in the mid-2000s with a, a great album uh, called Ariel. Okay. Um, and she hadn't done anything. She kind of just left music in, in the industry from probably the early 90s through like the 2000s. Jeez. I think she had a son that she wanted to kind of raise. And mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think she's super uh, excited about the sort of industry. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she's kind of a, I think, a, you know, quiet person in, in, the, in the normal life. So she kind of just retreated to like her estate in England. But Ariel's a really beautiful record that she came back with in about 05. Uh, so, Emily, let's let's get more yeah. of your thoughts on on Kate since you're new. I was, it was surprising because when you when I saw you pick Bjork, I was like, well, she probably likes Kate, you know, just given like <laughs> who she is and stuff. Well, also, it's important to know that 98% of the time, if I'm listening to music, I'm listening to classical. And then the other, it's probably more like 90% three percent of the time and then five percent of that rest i'm listening to jazz and then whatever's left over i'm listening to anything else so i have such a spotty and uh full of holes knowledge of anything remotely not a part of the jazz or classical world (laughs) so i i've got all kinds of holes in in my knowledge for sure and you know i love the fact that i've now filled one (laughs) and i'll start listening to her all the time but but yeah, I mean, I, I loved the entire uh, second half of the album, which she did intend to kind of be listened all in one. The last, um, what is it? Six tracks, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, yeah. seven tracks. The last yep. seven tracks. On the on the vinyl, it's like side two, basically. Yeah, yeah. And she calls that the ninth wave. And I just, I was just so into that. I love, I loved it. So, um, I mean, we could really start anywhere, but... Um, because there's just such great sound design stuff in there. Um, I pointed out a, an instance in the seventh track called Under Ice because there's almost like this random sound effect that um, pops in. And it's just such a great example of her just like using these sounds to just create an impact. So I wouldn't mind if we could listen to that little yeah, spot. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. <laughs> Yeah, right there. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it it seems so innocuous and like why the hell would I bring that up? But I I just was so it just caught my attention so much that I was like, wow, what an effective bizarre sound in this super creepy song about falling asleep in the water and maybe drowning because you might roll over. Yeah. <laughs> she uses a lot of uh like interesting which, you know, for a sort of a not a pop artist, but a rock artist, I guess, but she uses a lot of sample dialogue too. Yeah. Which is kind of an interesting thing, which a, a lot of people didn't necessarily do outside of maybe like hip hop, you know, which yeah. I'm sure was just a coincidence. I don't think she was really in tune with that, what was going on with that. But it, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's such an interesting record because it, it's, on one hand, it's like her most accessible work. Uh, because yep. the first side is just like absolutely like, you know, just yeah. kind of her aesthetic just made the most accessible and most, you know, just uh, infectious that you could probably possibly make it and then on the second side you're kind of dropped into something that's that's much darker so dark and 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 kind of uh i still have listened to this a million times i'm not entirely sure i i read something that's sort of sort of yeah about the dream world and like somebody that falls asleep on a boat oh man the kate bush like wikipedia page is amazing (laughs) (laughs) it basically quotes what jason was talking about i think and it kind of goes it has her talking track by track kind of explaining how this is like one of her biggest fears is to be stranded out in the ocean. I'm like, yes, mine too. And I don't even live anywhere near, near one. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. just what a terrifying thing to just. And so, yeah, it's, it's really cool to, to hear her talk about um, everything, uh, especially uh, the next track sort of, but uh, one that I wasn't even going to really bring up what watching you without me is a really fascinating story about, a dialogue between the person who's stranded in the ocean and their future self telling them that if they don't keep their shit together, they're going to die and there won't be a future self and they won't have kids. It's just really crazy. Yeah, no, it's, we should listen to it. It's, it's deep. Yeah. I love the bass work on this album. Yeah. I had a hard time picking out what's like real bass and what's completely synth, which I guess is kind of the magic of it. Yeah. I get tricked all the time by samples nowadays with strings and stuff. I'm always like, I don't know. Is it? Yeah. How was the recording session? Oh, that's all synth. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I think it's like a lot of heavily like compressed, like fretless bass. Because you got to think like the, the the synth bass of this time was not that sophisticated. You know what I mean? Right. And there's also, I'm going to look it up because there is one track with acoustic bass and it might be this one. I can't hear quite well over the thing. but Is it cheating if I look it up? <laughs> no, go ahead. I think they call it upright bass. No, what they call it? Oh, double bass. Oh, track nine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this one, double bass, acoustic bass. Excellent. God, what a good sound. I played that in college a little bit. I got some tutelage, and I bass. could never, I could never make it sound good or look cool. I wanted to do like the, <laughs> what is it called? Um, 
not hillbilly, not honky tonk, like rockabilly. rockabilly thing. Rockabilly. Did you want to stand up on it? Oh and, like, man, so badly. Spin it around. I wanted to get like the aluminum ones that you yeah. can like spin and slap and punch and tap. Oh, and but no, I I never got that good at it. I just went Dude. back to my little three three quarter scale uh, uh, electric. Amazing. I'm just going to detour a little bit, but you mentioned Rockabilly. So, like, dude, you know, like, Brian Setzer used to live by Game Informer. What? <laughs> yes, there's there's a big, there's a, there's a, um, there was, there's a, uh, down the block, you know, down, you're heading east from Game Informer. And there was the, the little pull in there was a corner store. And there was, like, toast, this wine bar. He oh, had yeah. the penthouse in that. So, like, I would see him, like, buying smokes at that corner store. <laughs> And he dre- he dresses like Brian Setzer like on a Tuesday. What you know what I mean? Like like he's buying like he's buying like camel lights and he's got like a bedazzled like crazy ass leather jacket and like you know his hair is done up and he's like wearing like engineer boots. You know what I mean? The whole I'm just bit. Not surprised. Like, yeah, he's the- he lived in Minneapolis for a while. Weird. Anyway, shout out to Brian Setzer. Love that, Brian. If you hear this, come on the pod. Yeah, he's a Kate fan. <laughs> Actually, one more celebrity side. One uh, weirdly prominent Kate Bush fan is a uh, big boy from Outcast. Really? Yes. Yeah. Neat. Yeah, he's <laughs> obsessive Kate Bush fan. Amazing. Honestly, after list one, after like you know maybe six or seven lessons through this one album of hers, I'm ready to say that anybody who's like emotionally adjusted and in touch with their feelings is probably gonna like Kate Bush. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. The next track too, Jig of Life, I just loved. Yeah, I thought that was so so great. I think this is cool because um, it, it breaks up the album in an interesting way because you know as you kind of brought up, there's there's so much interesting use of kind of very. I mean, it is very '80s production, but I think she's so good at it that it becomes yeah. almost timeless. But then all of a sudden, you're kind of dropped into a more traditional kind of like you know, uh, you know, folk folk music idiom. Yeah, uh, in an, that's sort of I think a cool thing on a record that's you know is very synthesized and very um, yeah. And when they play the actual jig, I mean that's all like acoustic instruments, which is so awesome. I just love it. So I I love that too. I mean it's so similar between her and Bjork, just the marriage of something completely modern for the time and electronic and synthesized, but yet super mm-hmm. traditional with you know Ilian pipes and bazookis and just balalaikas and didgeridoos and you're like yes all that yes amazing let's listen to it yeah we'll pick up just before it hits the jig at around 140 She's so over the top right there. Yeah, this track is funny because it really kind of stops you because you're just like, wow, I didn't expect this album the way we were going <laughs> to like yeah, all of a sudden go in this direction. Yeah, I don't know how, how y'all listened to it for this podcast, but I, I listened to it for the first time on like a 6 a.m. morning walk with my dog, just headphones <laughs> on. And this hit, and I'm like walking along Lake Street, just about a mile from where all the riots happened. And I'm like, I can't break out into an Irish jig here, but I really, really, really want to. <laughs> yeah, I did headphones, and I was glad I did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not because it's weird, not cause, no. just because all the channel would, mixing up and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I would say with both these albums too that it's worth like 
if you if you have good speakers, if you have good headphones, you know it, it's worth making an effort to hear it on in the best possible uh, quality you can because yeah. they're both extremely well produced records and they have a lot of just sonic detail. I think that might get lost if you're just kind of listening to like earbuds. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like kind of a twisted Irish melody jig too. It's not. There are. It's just a little weird. Yeah, you know, it's just like a little bent. There are those <laughs> moments when it goes minor, right? Where yeah. there are like random minor intervals that just jump yep. in and out. Yeah. Yeah, it's super super cool. What else can we play from your uh, from some of your timestamps, Emily? Um, I I guess you know i i really did love the last two tracks and i know we've just talked so so long but i i i don't really want to choose between the two so no let's I, let's we got all the time <laughs> in the world um hello earth the penultimate song as they might say um is is so cool because she uh borrowed that georgian folk song that shows up in that vampire nosferatu which i don't watch horror movies so i've never seen it but um she just pulls this Georgian folk song right from it Georgian as in Republic of and uh, it's just really cool the juxtaposition and she talks about how she had these holes in this track and she didn't know what to put in there and then she she tried to write something like that and then she was like I just really want that can we do that and they're like yes she's like okay I'm gonna do that then and it's it's so cool so uh, it happens a couple times in the track Hello Earth which is also a really deep deep tune, lyrically speaking. <laughs> I'm wondering if that's her herself pitched down with a sampler. No, it's not. Oh, it's, it's not. actually... Okay. Yeah, it's the singers. It's um, a, a group called the Rickard, Richard Hick, Hick, oh, Jesus. <laughs> Richard Hickox Singers, and that's a British, uh, British early music ensemble, basically, that sang for that soundtrack, and oh, wow. she just used that, yeah. And just seamless transition somehow, even though, I mean, I just love that. You know what it reminds me of is, uh, I know I know Matt did. Emily, did you ever listen to David Bowie's final album, Black nope. Star? Um, there's some very Gregorian-style chanting in a lot of those tracks. Um, Interesting. Particularly in, I think it's the title track. But just like the weird juxtaposition of his like sort of frail but strong old voice and that yeah. very eerie sounding it reminds me i mean it's different vibes entirely mm-hmm. but it reminds me of how seamlessly those two things were married yeah sure that's yeah. a remarkable record oh yeah interesting I'll, I'll check it out i mean and right here just like the strength of her voice and her yeah. com- her command is just stunning so good
Yes. <laughs> that was the correct thing to do. <laughs> and this is it's you amazing. Say, like there <laughs> she... was just space in the track. Like there wasn't anything there. And she thought, what do I put she... in? Yeah, she she like they had rehearsed the whole track. I mean, whatever live, whatever. Um, and on that Kate Bush Wikipedia or encyclopedia, whatever it is that I found online, um, she she's like, I didn't know what to do. I had the whole track written, but I had two spaces that I wanted something more. And she didn't know what to do. And she had watched the movie and she loved this. And then they went about finding out how to get the rights to do that and if that was even a possibility. And when she found out it was possible to do it, she's like, yes, I yeah. want that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, it just, like, it couldn't be anything else. <clears throat> like, she, I just think it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And just, I mean, also just kudos to her um, for being, you know, coming up through the late 70s, through the mid 80s, you know, and just to stake out such artistic freedom in the industry. And particularly probably as a, as a female solo artist. I mean, she wasn't, you know, like, she didn't sell to love like Pink Floyd's old records. You know what I mean? Like, but somehow yeah. she just had the will to say, like, I'm going to make these records, you know, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. which I, I can't imagine was easy, you know, because I'm sure there was, you know, she was, you could see a way that she could be packaged into something much more commercially conventional, you know, because she has totally. conventional talent. She's. She's, you know, attractive. She has a very strong voice. You know what I mean? Yeah, she could have been like the next Joan Jett, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> wow. Joan <laughs> yeah. Jett and Kate Bush. That like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just uh, they shout could out to have. Joan. I, uh, Joan Jett, I was a big, like, that was the first, uh, first record I ever really listened to was Joan Jett. Nice. Yeah. And when I was like. <laughs> but they a, could have shoehorned her in that way, I feel oh, like. Oh, you know, totally. Yeah. If she had been willing to be shoehorned. Yeah. Should we hear the last song? Yeah, the last song to me is like so immensely effective because there's all this darkness of this person who's, you know, stranded out at sea with nothing and trying to survive. And then obviously they get rescued, which she makes a point to say, I don't actually say that in the track, but it's implied. And it's just such a bright, beautiful track. And it also uses, I couldn't believe it, it uses a super famous classical guitarist named john williams not the composer okay. not the star wars sure. you know jurassic park dude his he's australian his name is john williams and he's a classical guy like i played his stuff on the radio all the time when i worked for the classical station so i, I love that he's on this track and he's like through the whole thing and it's just beautiful and you can tell he's playing a nylon string classical guitar he's not playing a you know a steel string acoustic so i it's really beautiful track Yeah, just the purity of that nylon string, it would have sounded completely different on a steel string guitar. It just blows my mind that that nuance that she's like, no, that's what I want. You know, that's awesome. She also just is an aside. She has a very idiosyncratic way of programming drum machines. Okay. Like I just, you know what I mean? Like the the beat is, it, it, it works, but it's not how you would normally like program a beat. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I think I know what you mean, Matt. Like that extra um, hi-hat hit that comes in instead of like the kick that you're expecting. It like doesn't land when you think it might. Yeah, and it's just not it's not necessarily like, kick driven either, you know, like which is usually kind mm-hmm. of the thing. 
That's an 80s, yeah. fret, 80s fretless bass. <laughs> yeah, you, just, right? you gotta love that right there. So good. I'm so, so glad you picked it. I was just like, Did it make you sad that, they, that you didn't, like, when you were of the age, like, that you didn't know it? Did it make me, does it make me sad? Well, like, that you didn't have it when you were, like, 16. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think that about a, a thousand bands. I think that about Bjork, that I didn't come to her until I was in my 30s, you know, and I mm-hmm. could have been listening to her when I was in high school. Yeah. Well, maybe yeah. not high, well, yeah, high school. And, uh, you know, stuff like that, like the Pixies, I never listened, I never got a new, oh, wow. any, yeah. you know, just all kinds of huge gaping holes in my, you know, history of quote unquote popular music. And by which I mean anything not jazz or classical, basically. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, I do. I do think that a lot. I'm like, oh, man, what would that have been like if I had grown up listening to Kate Bush? <laughs> It'd be amazing. <laughs> But what yeah. a way to end the album. Yeah, it's My very God. triumphant so and, you know. Yeah. But that's that's the kind of thing with Kate. It's just like, I feel like sometimes I feel like she's so brave because she'll run right into what could be perceived as like completely overwrought and even like cheesy or corny. You know what I mean? Like she has yeah. such, she she's just fearless in that way. Like I, that's what I... I admire her so much as an artist because I think she's just she has a vision of what she wants to do and I don't think that she's afraid if people think that it's too much or if people you know find it off-putting because I know I know I think there's kind of like you either don't know Kate Bush you're like you love Kate Bush or you dislike Kate Bush you know what I mean yeah I don't think there's like casual fans you know yep I think yeah I think Bjork's probably that way too in a lot of ways yeah Yeah. Although you might call yourself a casual fan of hers. I don't know. I guess maybe I'm a casual Bjork fan. Yeah, yeah. I probably am. Because, I mean, I was kind of at the age when she was, you know, in, I was in college and she was, you know, that was kind of her peak. You know what I mean? Yep. And, yep. Um, and I had a roommate that was very into, like, electronic kind of stuff that was happening at that time. Nice. Like, drum and bass and all that kind of stuff. And so he was into her. Yep. Um, nice. But, but, yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, Hounds of Love, I can't. I, I, I sound... You know, I get to be kind of like Jehovah's Witness sounding um, <laughs> when I when I talk about it. But uh, I think it's it's just such an amazing record, and she's such a force. Um, also, one song you guys should listen to. It's off Ariel, her O five album. It's called Pie. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so it's got three choruses, and all three choruses are her singing uh, "Pie" to the decimals. <laughs> <laughs> so I think by the end of the song, she's gotten like maybe like. <laughs> you know, 40 decimals deep on pi, but the, literally like the, the chorus of pi is just her reciting pi. <laughs> so, I love it. Yeah. Ariel's really a good record. It's a double. It's, she came back with a double album after like being gone for over like a decade. So um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Amazing. But cool. I'll check well, it out for sure. Emily, this was super awesome. Uh, I, I'm so glad you picked Bjork. It's been really a fun conversation, and hopefully we can uh, we can do this again sometime. Um, I don't know. If, or, do you have time to stay, stick around for uh, community sure. questions? You bet. You okay. bet. We'll keep, it, we'll keep it short. Sure. No worries. I'll, I'll get my little spiel. Of course, this uh, newly renamed show, Crossfade, is available for free wherever you're listening to it. Um, but, of course, Patreon supporters of MinMax get to suggest uh, songs for us to listen to, questions for us to answer, and our guests. Um, and we're about to read a few of those. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron of MinMax, visit patreon.com slash minmax with two N's. Uh, and let Ben know that it was a Crossfade uh, reference that sent you because I'll get a kickback on that. I will not. 
Um, the first question <laughs> comes from Joe Halaska, who asks uh, if you've ever become really familiar with a soundtrack before playing the video game it's from. And when you finally did play the game, uh, was the game anything like what you imagined? Um, I have a, uh, actually a quick answer because uh, uh, Level, the great podcast, uh, jogged my <laughs> memory. Uh, there was a time at uh, when I was at Game Informer, I was doing, I was trying to do some interviews uh, on a regular basis uh, for the front of the book with uh, video game composers. And I'd hooked up with this really cool, uh, his name was Greg, really cool PR guy that represented a lot of video game composers. Probably Greg O'Connor-Reed. Yes, Greg O'Connor-Reed. Super nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you probably work with him all the time. Uh, he's wonderful. Yeah, yeah Greg's, Greg's amazing. Yep. And he worked with Jesper Kidd. And mm -hmm. he had, so he would just start sending me like promo stuff uh, for like CDs when they were still doing CDs. And I, I got Darksiders 2. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, oh, I just really... Yeah, I, I was kind of. I think I was supposed to interview uh, Jesper and and do a little email thing, and so I just it was one of those things where I, I was like, "Wow, this is really good." I just got really into that that uh, soundtrack because he happened to send me a promo CD of it, so mm -hmm. that was my one that I, I I recalled. Did you end up playing it then? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, I think his stuff is very. It puts you in the mode or the mental picture of the yeah. game very well. Yep. I think that's one of his his kind of. Uh, strengths maybe i mean you would obviously know yeah. more than i but i think that it definitely had that kind of vibe that i the, it didn't it didn't uh <clears throat> conflict with the game's vibe it kind of enhanced the game's vibe yeah yeah i i agree and that's so funny because i had a, the same experience with that i like fell in love with that album that soundtrack just front to back i thought it was so great and it's to this day one of my favorite yes for kid albums and uh i played the game later and it just, I was like, yep, this is perfect. This is exactly right. But I guess I would also add to that, um, that that happens to me with every horror game that I do an interview about, because I, except that I never end up playing the games because I'm way too chicken. So I <laughs> like, I know uh, probably the, my favorite horror score is probably Dead Space 2 by Jason Graves. And it, there's a couple other really great ones too. I know Jessica Curry did a really great Amnesia soundtrack that was just t to die for, literally. And you know, I never played those games. I did try to play a little of Dead Space. Did I try the first one or the second one? I can't remember. And I made it like 17 minutes in, and I was like, nope, 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 not doing it. <laughs> so, yeah. So anytime I'm interviewing someone about a horror score, you know that I have not played the game. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Uh, so I asked because it came to mind. Um, what is the strangest record, CD, or album in your collection? And I qualify that as not necessarily the rarest, but just the weirdest piece of recorded sound you own. I what came to my mind immediately was this CD that my aunt Marilyn gave me probably thirty years ago called Jazz Loon. <laughs> 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 and, wow. you know, it's like one of those that you'd pick up at like Target or something. And it's just great because it's like pretty cheesy jazz, like soprano saxy kind of jazz. But it just has loons, loon calls in the back, which is great. So that one's pretty weird. But yeah, I'll never, ever get rid of that album ever. Um, yeah, I struggle with this because I have like a lot of stuff, but I don't know. I feel like sometimes if it's kind of like noise, like rock kind of stuff, it's kind of supposed to be weird. So it's. You know, I don't know if that's weird, but um, <laughs> I have one that's a real oddity. I got this off eBay, and uh, it's called Teenage Guitars Go Civil War by Gloria <laughs> Kennedy and her three electric guitars. 
And <laughs> it is genuinely like I couldn't place another piece of music that's like this. It's sort of um it's a theme record. It's about Civil War. So she's doing like a lot of um, you know, stuff like Battle Hymn of the Republic and Bonnie Blue Flag, but it's done in this very hyper kind of primitive rockabilly style. But her <laughs> her vocals are kind of almost like more like Blossom Deary or people like that. Um, it's ex- exceedingly weird and eccentric record. And so basically this kind of like spastic, like rockabilly versions of Civil War era folk songs done by a woman that has a very kind of odd and like overly mannered kind of voice. Um, she also played like the, the uh, I, I looked her up. She's still recording albums. Okay. Um, she just recorded like, she's like in her 90s and she's recorded an album about she, I think she got in a lawsuit with somebody, so she she self released a CD about like the American justice system <laughs> and like tort reform in like '96. <laughs> like she's she's like legitimate like eccentric. Um, it's just that's amazing. sort of like this kind of operatic kind of vocal. So I, I it, that's one of the rarer records I have, and it's it's certainly a weird one. You can find some of it on YouTube. Like thankfully now you can hear some of that stuff. But teenage guitars go civil war. Amazing. Check I'm it looking out. that up later for sure wild uh tim laro asks in the spirit of the new name of the show share a couple of uh, memorable crossfades that you know about and uh in general do you think that they should be invisible in a song uh you know barely noticeable or should they really leave an impact i i just this song was super huge like a year ago it was like all over the radio and like i I don't even really know travis scott too much i mean i know drake but uh, sicko mode by travis scott and drake like it's a really weird song in the fact that it's not really like one song. It's kind of like three songs like jammed together. Like they just change up the beat in the middle of the song in kind of a weird way. And it was super popular, but I, I, I remember hearing it on the radio and just being like, this is a really oddly structured song for like a pop, like kind of rap hit. And um, so, yeah, I, I kind of appreciated how abrupt and like just, you know, slammed, like they would just slam into a new beat and it, with no acknowledgement of what came before it. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not really sure how to answer that question. I mean, when I think of a crossfade, I think of um, the editing audio and like trying to make uh, smoothless kind of edits and, and transitions or like going from one tune in a radio to bringing up the next tune. Um, so I'm not really sure, honestly, how to answer that question. And I apologize. No, no, that's my, that, my lack of answer. That, that is, that is totally an answer. I think what Tim was poking at there was like, should they be noticeable or are they just an element of, you know, utilitarian editing to get to the next song without, without jarring you? I think that's, oh, that's yeah. an answer. I guess, yeah. You know, there's certain artists that kind of made a, you know, like I'm trying to think like Frank Zappa. I mean, those like his albums yeah. are like heavily edited in it. And that was like tape cutting back then, you know? So sure. But I think yeah. now it's, I think now it doesn't even, you know, kids, you know, now are just like, they're so used to just, it's so easy to edit stuff together. You know what I mean? I think it's just such yeah. a language of like how people, and I, even the, the Bjork album we listen to, you know what I mean? Is, is I'm sure mm-hmm. editing, mm-hmm. Di- digital editing, I think is kind of just part of music making now in a way, in a fundamental way that it wasn't. You know. Yeah, but the other thing I love about that album, which we didn't even talk about, is that I'm 99% sure she didn't auto-tune her voice. And if she did, she did it in a way that still makes it sound natural because she still sings like slightly out of tune every once in a while. And that's something that's really hard to find these days because they fix all that shit in post now, which is really mm-hmm. frustrating. Oh, no, so, I don't. Because it just I sets didn't. the standard. So, so, yeah, I just that's one of the things I love about 
that album is there's none of that digital production, but there is so much digital production that it just, you're right, it's just a part of the landscape now. You're just like, that's how it is, you know? No, I'm totally with you. I mean, I, I think that people talk about like, you know, auto-tune in terms of like T-Pain or like rappers <coughs> where it's a very noticeable effect, yep. which that doesn't really yeah. bother me because to me that's almost kind of an update of like, you know, Peter Frampton or, you know what I mean? Like, Vocoder. Yeah, when they're using it in a really like l- obviously digital way. Yeah, or like you know, yeah. "Rocket" by Herbie Hancock or stuff like that. But like, yep. it, the problem to me is like, I mean, my God, if you want to hear auto tune, like, listen to like a new Morrissey record. Like, he can't or just listen to Beyonce ever. Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, mean like, I hate to tell you, but yeah, I mean, I mean, there, it's just that kind of like almost uncanny valley kind of thing that happens. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like no one can sing that perfectly on in tune, whether they have perfect pitch or not. It's just. <laughs> it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Grizzled Gaming asks, and this is a question we're bringing forward from a previous episode as well. But I liked it so much, and I think we can get uh, some fun, some fun new thoughts out of it. Um, Grizzled Gaming says, "Hey, Mini Mousers, uh, which I guess isn't really a, a nickname anymore for this show. I'll update that. Uh, <laughs> what's an album <laughs> that you think would be a great basis for a video game in concept?" Uh, and give us the elevator pitch for the game based on said album. Um, just for reference, Paul Charchian, who was on this episode or on this podcast recently, uh, gave, I think her name was Anna von Hauswolf as a concept. It's just really doom and gloom type. And he thought maybe a Bloodborne-esque game would fit. Um, huh. When I think of this question, I think straight of the, what was it on the Atari or something? The Journey game that existed i don't know if anybody oh, else journey remembers escape this. yeah was it that <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. yeah that that same concept of literally just escaping uh, i i guess matt do you want to lead uh do you have any new thoughts out of this one okay so i did a little i thought of something and then i did a little research because we already had this one and i felt like i kind of flubbed it the first time so i'm going to shout out this is an underrated prog rock record of the 1970s the oleus of sun hillo by john anderson what the, the hell? The, he's the lead singer of Yes, and this was his self-indulgent, even more self-indulgent than Yes is already self-indulgent, 1976 solo record. And so I'm just going to read. This is straight up Wikipedia because I couldn't you know, do this. Plot. The planet of Sunhill is home to four tribes. Negrunium, Estranius, Oratectium, and Noridonius, each which represents a different aspect of music consciousness which comes under threat after a catastrophic eruption of its volcano. Oleus, a magician, is chosen, the architect of an ark, made, named Morglade Mover, to fly Sunhillow's people to a new planet. He's helped by fellow magicians Reinhardt, a heart-playing navigator of the glider, and Coquake, a mystic and appointed spokesperson who unites the four tribes to bring the planet together. Wow. So how uh, about that? Shout out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's kind of a cool record. It's if you, you have to like, yes, obviously, but he does a lot of cool, like, because he's the lead singer. So I think he's he's unbound by the, uh, you know, the complete, you know, uh, straight jacket of yes, you know, because you could only have like, you know, 40 minute songs. Um, so he's very like, yeah. he does a lot of like cool, like uh, overdubbing of himself of like super crazy, like harmonies and stuff. Anyway. Kind of a cool record. Oleus of Sun Hillow, John Anderson. Shout out to John Anderson. Shout out yeah, to that, that um, concept straight you know. up is like Peter Molyneux, watch your ass, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's probably like a JRPG already that we just didn't know about. It came on like, you know, Saturn, only in Japan. Yeah. I guess I would say um, I, I used to think there's this <clears throat> local band I was into 
so much for half a minute called um, Solid Gold. Maybe oh, yeah. that was the name of the... Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I... I really uh, uh, loved that and thought they uh, would make a great game, but I think it would be super depressing. And, and that was like 10 years ago that I thought that. So, but it's funny that I I think about this from time to time. And, and I would say like, obviously there are parts of that Kate Bush album where I'm like, oh my God, that'd be such a great combat track or something, you know, yeah. you're like, oh, yes. Yeah. Um, How about the ninth wave? That's, you know, yeah. this is a video game. That's a great Just title. Ooh. All of that as a video game, exactly, would be amazing. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I think there are a lot of great electronic musicians and Kate Bush being one of them, Bjork being one of them, um, that funky band Alt-J could make a really fun soundtrack, just instrumental, like cool stuff, like any number of trip hop artists. I just, mm -hmm. There's so many people out there that could make amazing video game soundtracks. And I think just don't think about it or don't have the access to do it, you know? Yeah, for but sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Well, that was the end of our community questions. Uh, I should introduce our community song, which we'll play as an outro. Um, this is Nai Riaidom uh, by Calibri, suggested by Jason Wojnar, as it uh, reminded him significantly of of the, of the Bjork and uh, Kate Bush vibes. Um, again, Nai Riaidom by Calibri. We'll be playing that on our way out, but I'll let Matt take us out. Well, number one, Emily, thank you so much. This is really great. I hope we can have you back sometime. I'd love to, Matt. Thank you. And Jason, to you as well. It was a pleasure speaking with you guys. This was really fun. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and please check out Level with Emily Reese, levelwithemily.com and wherever podcasts are available. Um, it's, it's a great show, especially if you're obviously a lot of our listeners are passionate about music and passionate about games. And it, 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 it's a podcast for you. So um, thanks again, Jason. Great work as always. And uh, we will see you next week. Yeah, thanks for listening. Rate and review us and check back in two weeks for more me, more Matt, more music, and a new guest. Bye now. Yeah.